Welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's, our St. Luke's podcast. This week we have Dr. E.B. Arnold joining us again to share with us uh, more of the book of Job. This week we're looking at the second chapter of Job as we look at how Job's friends come alongside him and influence some of the way that he shapes his story. So we look forward to hearing from Dr. Arnold tonight. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another lecture on Job this week. This one is titled, from many voices, my voice. As we discussed last week, Job honors the present moment of his circumstances and even initially interprets his past through the lens of his present. By expressing his feelings and accepting his current situation, Job grounds himself. He tells the truth as he understands it, and by acknowledging his reality, he is then free to look at his reality from other perspectives or we might say, to listen to other voices. These other voices come in two major forms, Job's wife and Job's friends. Let's talk about Mrs. Job first. The narrator describes Job sitting on a pile of ashes, scratching his blisters that have been inflicted on him with a scrap of pottery. And Job's wife says to him in chapter two, verse nine, do you still persist in your integrity? That word integrity means integrated or whole. Quite literally, she asks Job, how are you holding everything together? She then lays down the challenge, just curse God and die already. Bible readers frequently give Job's wife a hard time. She's often called a nagging wife or a faithless negative person. People have often judged her as an unsupportive spouse, tempting her to curse God tempting her husband to curse God. Even Job retorts, why are you talking as if you were some foolish woman? But I would like to offer two thoughts about her character. First, let's not forget that everything Job lost, she lost too. While Job gets the whole rest of the book to air his emotions, her feelings of bitter loss and confusion are condensed into this one verse. If any one of us had a friend who lost all her children in one day, I doubt we would judge her too too harshly if she snapped at her husband. Second, I suggest that we consider her literary role in the story. She represents the option of cursing God, which is a possible and even understandable response to the unfair tragedies that have befallen Job's family. In a few moments, we'll talk about Job's friends. They offer Job a very different possibility than does Job's wife that he should consider his calamities a result of sin and so repent. In this light, I believe the storyteller means for us to see Job's wife and Job's friends as representing two possible responses to the situation. And as we will see, Job rejects both and makes his own path. He tells his story in his own way and with his own voice. Now, when his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar first see Job sitting in the ashes, covered in sores. They make a very good choice, initially. They sit next to him for days and mourn with him without saying a word. But then Job verbally acknowledges both his situation and his feelings about it. Remember last week when we saw Job reinterpret his entire life through the lens of his current sadness and devastation? 
well, after he voices those feelings. His friends just can't help themselves, and they seem hell-bent on giving Job what they think is crucial advice that will utterly transform his circumstances. Let's explore in more detail what Job's friends have to say. The author of Job rotates through three rounds of each of the friends addressing Job, and I'll just summarize what each friend says. First, Eliphaz makes the case that Job has either committed a sin or has some kind of moral deficiency, and that he should understand these tragic circumstances as God's discipline. In chapter 5, verse 17, Eliphaz reminds Job that such punishment is a sign of God's care. Job should receive it as such, and this would prove Job's wisdom. As we saw last week when we looked at Deuteronomy 28, this is a legitimate understanding of calamity, and it has a place in the Bible. If we look at our own lives, we can certainly identify bad things that have happened as a result of our own poor decisions. This is a well-prepared, well-evidenced argument that Eliphaz offers. The only problem, responds Job, is that it does not apply to this situation. Job asks his friend in 625 what exactly his reproof is reproving. In other words, Eliphaz has a solution and he goes looking for the problem. He has the answer. But what is needed right now are questions. And questions are exactly what Job has to offer. Second, in comes Bildad, and he reinforces Eliphaz's point by stating, we reap what we sow. Somewhere along the way, Job must have planted seeds that have sprouted into his current circumstances. Now, what's very telling about Bildad's response is why he says it. Job has countered his friends, stating that he has examined himself and knows that he has done nothing to warrant this punishment. Bildad responds in chapter 18, verses 3 through 5, Why are we stupid in your sight? Should the earth be forsaken because of you, or the rock be removed from its place? You see, Bildad needs the world to work in a certain way, a way that's predictable to him. It makes him uncomfortable to consider that Job's situation may not have the answer that has always worked for him before. And when he says to Job, should the rock be removed from its place? He acknowledges that his interpretation of Job's situation has far more to do with himself than it does with Job. Third, Zophar shows the expected trajectory of the previous two friends. Since Job has done something wrong, he should repent. In chapter 11, Zophar tells Job that if he will just admit that he sinned, all the blessings will find a way back to him. Everything will be made right. Do you see how this parallels what Job's wife says? She says, just curse God and die. And Job responds that such a response is not true to his identity. That would be dishonest. Zophar, on the other hand, says to repent, to confess so that God would reinstate him. And Job responds that this plan is equally dishonest. He has done nothing wrong, and to admit so would be a lie. Fourth, surprise, there's a fourth friend who shows up in the narrative completely unannounced. 
His name is Elihu, and he reveals that he is much younger than the other men, but nonetheless has some wisdom to offer. In chapter 32, he questions Job, saying, Why do you defend yourself and justify your own actions? Why are you not defending God? In short, Elihu says, if you were so righteous, you would be justifying God's actions to everyone. Isn't that interesting? I find this very ironic because Elihu goes on to show Job how this is done. He says in chapter 36, verse 2, Bear with me and I will show you, for I have something to say on God's behalf. He goes on to enumerate all God's wonders and awesome displays of power in creation. God is the one who draws up water droplets to form clouds and then sends the rain. And thunder is the voice of God's own self. Fascinating that someone who so clearly observes God's ultimate power and majesty feels that God needs to be defended. I once talked with a woman who had lost her family in a terrible accident. Although she was a believer, she said that it was actually her friends who weren't Christians who got her through the most difficult times. She said they didn't feel the need to defend God. Instead, they defended me and my feelings because I was the one who needed support. Wow. If we truly believe in the God we claim that we do, we would have no need to craft him a clever defense. In fact, Job addresses this very point in chapter 9, verses 19 and 20. If it's a contest of strength, God is the strong one. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am innocent, my own mouth would still condemn me. And although I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. Basically, Job says that even though he is innocent, an argument between God and him is not a fair fight. Job's friends would be far more helpful and more noble coming to Job's defense rather than God's. Back to Elihu. The God of the universe who creates and sustains requires the words of this mortal to be justified? The author of Job notices this irony because when Elihu finishes this very lengthy speech, it is not Job who answers, but God. And God himself lists, in fact reiterates, all of his roles in creation. God did not require the words of Elihu. God can and does speak, and ultimately, God is less than impressed with Job's friends. In this week's look at Job, we see how Job moves from these other voices, his wife's and his friends, and he finds his own voice. Job uses that voice to tell his own story in his own way. And after reading through Job's responses to his friends, we can see him use his voice to state three needs that he has in these circumstances. First, Job states his unmet need for kindness and compassion from his friends. He says in chapter 6, verses 14 through 17, Those who withhold kindness from a friend forsake the fear of the Almighty. My companions are treacherous, like a torrent bed that freshets pass away, that run dark with ice, turbid with melting snow, 
In the time of heat, they disappear. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. In fact, in chapter 16, verse 2, he says directly to his friends, miserable comforters are you all. But Job acknowledges why they struggle to comfort him. He says, they are disappointed because they were confident. They came here and they are now confounded. You see my calamity and are afraid. Chapter 6, verses 20 through 21. Just like we discussed earlier, the friends are scared because Job's story challenges the way they understand the world and how it works. Moreover, it challenges the way they understand, or rather don't understand, God. Second, Job's move to his own voice from the voices of his friends is seen next by how he describes his need for expression. Over and over, Job states how much he simply needs to say what he feels. In chapter 7, verse 11, he says, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Job understands that this agony does not require so much an explanation, as his friends think, but an expression. In chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, Job says, If I say, I'll forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be happy, then I become afraid of all my suffering. Job voices the truth that telling his story gives him courage to endure his story. I'll say that one more time. Job voices the truth that telling his story gives him courage to endure his story. In a few verses, Job concludes, And so I will freely express my complaint. This is very important for us to understand because our truth is the only one we are at liberty to express. In chapter 13, Job says that he will say what he needs to because he is only authorized to speak for himself. He questions his friends, will you speak falsely for God? Will you plead his case? Job's honesty means that he indeed questions God, but he does not answer for him. Third, and finally, Job expresses the need for self-possession. He claims his identity and does not let either his circumstances or the voices of his friends take him away from himself. Consider this statement that Job makes in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Look, my eye has seen all this, and my ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. By claiming his voice, Job owns himself and his story. The right to voice it and ultimately to interpret it belongs to him. In fact, Job repeats this very statement in chapter 13. And he concludes in chapter 27, verses 5 and 6, that he cannot concede to his friends because, quote, Until I die, I will not put my integrity away. Remember that word integrity means the whole connectedness. Job needs to not only possess himself, but govern the narrative about how all the parts of him and his story 
connect. Now, just as we did last week, we find a remarkable parallel in the New Testament story of Jesus. Jesus also had many voices of very well-meaning people around him who tried to interpret his stories in ways that made them more comfortable. In Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, it's Jesus' own family. They think he's gone off the deep end. They're worried what people think about him. And they come and try to take him home to get him to stop his ministry. And Jesus responds that his true family are those men and women who hear God's word and act on it bravely. In fact, Jesus' own disciples try to tell him what his story should be like. Also in Mark's gospel, Peter makes a declaration that Jesus is God's own Messiah, the Christ. But it's clear that Peter does not interpret it the same way that Jesus does. Mark tells us in chapter 8, verses 31 through 33, Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Jesus said all this quite openly. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Clearly, Peter was uncomfortable with the way Jesus was telling his story. We see Peter doing something very similar to Job's friends. It's almost as if Peter tells Jesus, don't mess with the way I understand God or the world or the Messiah or myself. And Jesus has some intense words for Peter in response. He says, get behind me, Satan, because you are only thinking from your human perspective. In other words, Peter wants Jesus' story to make him feel comfortable. And Jesus understands himself to be directed by God to a certain destiny. And while Jesus loves Peter, he is unwilling to sacrifice the truth of his story to keep Peter at ease. Jesus says this in Luke 13, 32 through 33, when questioned about this story. Listen. I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. My way. Jesus takes his own path as he understands God to have directed it. Jesus moves from the voices of his followers his friends, and his family, and grounds himself in his own voice, the voice of a Messiah who understands that his task is to suffer and die. I am so interested in what your responses to our study in Job will be this day. Maybe you'll explore when have you had to shift listening to what other people said about God to crafting your own understanding of God. Or maybe people have tried to tell you what should be included in your story about God and what should not. Either way, I'm very excited for you to continue this conversation. And I will see you next week when we will talk about what Job must move through. 
Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to our office hours time on your week with St. Luke's. I am Pastor Melissa, and I'm so glad to be with Dr. Karen Scheib again this week as we continue exploring the book of Job together and how it helps us learn to tell our own stories as part of the greater God story. This week, we're going to look at Job chapter two, which we just heard Dr. Arnold's lecture on. I'm talking about all the voices that uh, are around Job that try to define his story, that shape some of how he might see his from part of his story. And how he has to wrestle not only with his own experiences, but also those voices that are all around him, right? Last time we talked about how we draw from a wide range of stories informing our own life story, stories that sometimes we experience and sometimes that are told to us, but that either way they shape us. And Dr. Scheib, I love how you talked about how we're actors, not just authors, that we're living them, we're participating in all of this, and that we have embodied stories. So I assume that when we think about ourselves, those stories are are what help us shape our sense of self, right? Yes, that's exactly right. We, we don't just pull stories from our head or make them up. Well, not if we're healthy people, we don't make them up. <laughs> But we weave together a life story of all the bits and pieces of the stories that we've collected from our families, from the larger culture. Um, One of the narrative psychologists I use calls these narrative environments, which is a, a little bit of a complex term, but I like it rather than just context because it really gets at two dimensions the, the collection of stories that we draw from, which are different between cultures. So if, if you've grown up between cultures, there are different sets of stories. Uh, it's not just different language, a different set of stories. But all those stories written in oral narratives, novels, TV shows, and um, there's, I think, a whole set of narratives that I'm pretty clueless about. Video games, they're a big part of culture now. I think those, we draw from those probably as well. Um, And so that's part of our narrative environment. And we're continually adding to that internal library over the course of our lives. So that's particularly true as we move, as I said, between communities and cultures. Mm -hmm. I've moved from Atlanta to Savannah. There's a different set of stories about living on the coast from uh, as opposed to living in Atlanta. I moved from California to Tennessee. That was a big shift in cultural stories. Yeah, yeah, I can I can relate. I've lived in three or four different places, but all east of the Mississippi. And I have friends who have lived west of the Mississippi and have a different, different frame. So you said there's a few different dimensions going on in these narrative environments. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. So the first is this collection of the stories. The second is, is, is more of the context. And they're certainly related, like the physical context. So it's really any context. A narrative environment is any context in which we talk about our lives to ourselves or others. And of course, narrative environments always include other people. So the the first and most formative, of course, is our families. We learn what we can talk about. We learn what emotions are acceptable, what stories stay in the family, which ones we're allowed to repeat outside. Um, Our families also act as a conduit to us of larger stories of the larger culture or stories of our faith. That's often where we first hear Bible stories or we learn to pray at the table or concepts of God are introduced to us through our families. So those those are are often our most uh, formative environments. But it's not just what happens in the family is, is we talked about that we form a story out of it. And I don't know if you have siblings. But um, if you, anyone who has siblings, ask the siblings to tell the same story of what happened in the Christmas of, say, 19, 
99 or 2010, you'll get different stories because we're, we're always interpreting the events. So that interpretation is part of the storying process. We're making sense of what happens to us. Right. There's not really a true objective reality. It's always through each of our lenses, right? Exactly. Um, Something happens, but what it means to us and how we interpret it, what we pay attention to, what details we ignore, that will be different. And we're designed as humans to make meaning out of things. So it's a natural process that we, we go into. Exactly. So what's the impact? You know, we talk about these narrative environments and, and I can kind of objectively see that, but I might not necessarily see my own to the fullest. So what's the impact that our narrative environments have on us? Right. And one of the things we'll talk about is learning to sort of pay closer attention to our stories. You you mentioned that we're not, we're authors, not just actors, but it's kind of hard to see the story while you're writing it. So learning to pay attention to it, we can help look at what stories help us and which, which stories get in our way and paying attention to the narrative environments and how that shape is one of us. So often the, the, the values um, that we have, the things that are important to us are communicated to our uh, family stories. For example, maybe your parents tell a story of the time you rescued a baby bird from its nest and fed it with an eyedropper. This is actually a story from Barbara Brown Taylor's book, um, Leaving Church. She tells that story. And, um, and the story communicates that you're a kind and compassionate person. There's sort of values instilled, and you, you claim those. And those may also be reinforced as family values and traits. And they contribute to a positive sense of yourself and and help you grow perhaps into a more loving person. Yeah, I think my parents prefer to tell me the stories that I was less compassionate in. Um, find that a little more amusing, <laughs> but 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 either way, families are complicated. So you talk about this positive sense of self. I I'm not sure that we would all hear that that idea of family stories contributing to the the positive. Not all of those stories are positive, right? They're not all positive. And also much of it is how we interpret the story and how we interpret a story as a child might be very different than an, than an adult intends the story. Mm-hmm. So I talked last week a little bit about the um, eating the blue flower that my father was waiting for when I was two years old. And um, that, uh, that story, as I said, I had interpreted it for a long time as a kind of, kind of negative meaning that I was a disobedient child Um, but later I came to see it differently. Now, I don't think my parents told that story with any negative intention and it was a fairly innocuous story, but I still, for whatever reason, interpreted in some way that, that was not particularly helpful. The problem is, is that not all stories are, not all families, I should say, not all families are, are functional, um, or as healthy as they might be. And parents are often under strain. One of the things I only recently realized was that my parents were very young when they married, like 21 and 20. And my mother had two children under the age of two by the time she was 22. Wow. Um, and at the same time, my father was being diagnosed with, with diabetes. So there's a lot of external stress going on and that can happen in families and that can shape the negative environment if it's full of stress or trauma. And sometimes the stories are not so innocuous Um, They may be ones that um, are damaging in some ways that um, and they may even be forms of psychological abuse that children that grow up in families where there's a lot of addiction or 
mental health issues may be told they're stupid, they're not smart. This is unfortunate, but the problem is that we, these stories are put on us and we take them in and then we continue to repeat them to ourselves in ways that really are not helpful to us. Yeah. Yeah. You were talking about the the understanding sort of the context and those narrative environments of our of our parents. I saw something recently, um, probably a post on, on social media somewhere that said, as we were growing up, we didn't realize our parents were also growing up, too. Um, yes. And, and yes. recognizing that that concept of being in transition. And, and when you when you can frame it, it gives you an opportunity for some different grace uh, to to reframe some of those stories and, and who your your parents are and who those those familiar familial figures are. But I don't think that probably negates um, or solves maybe the damage that has been done still. And, and even some stories that are, a lot of stories are ambiguous in meaning. So one of, um, one of the, you know, the great commandment is love your neighbor, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, I kind of learned that is love God first, your other self, your other second and yourself third. And a friend of mine who grew up in the South said there was actually an acronym to that was joy. Jesus first, other second, yourself third. I'm pretty sure that the, the double commandment is not hierarchical in the Bible. Mm-hmm. But if we grow up in a setting, particularly if children are have to become parentified children and take on adult responsibilities, they can learn to put themselves second. And that becomes... And it's not intended to be a um, abusive story, but it can leave us not caring for ourselves in ways that are appropriate and, and diminish our flourishing. Right. And um, so those those environments um, can be difficult. Um, and we, we're often not aware that those that we, can, we when you grow up in a family, that's sort of normal, even if your family is not. The healthiest family, it's normal. It's what you know. Right. And it's often not until you move into a new narrative environment, you think, wait a minute. Not everybody heard these kinds of stories. Things are different. And uh, often for for young people, it's often when they go to college um, that they find people did things differently. They told stories differently. And they, I mean, even a small thing like, when you open your presents on Christmas Eve, it's a kind of action, but there's also a story about what, why you, what you do and why you do it. It's like, oh, people do things differently. Well, we know that at some level, but, but often when we're thrown into those environments and, it, and a college has its own narrative environments, own sets of stories, its own things that you sort of adapt to fit in. So we're always, the, the good news is that our stories are not fixed. We can revise them. We do move between narrative environments. We can begin to see that one story that works in one place, and th- that's the problem in families. And we can look at this from other lenses like family systems theory, but it's the same idea that we learn ways of, it, of adapting to the family's needs. And those ways of functioning, that story we tell ourselves might not work in another setting. Right. So the good news is that we can actually revise our stories. 
I think of it like when you have a favorite book or story or poem or whatever it might be and you read it throughout your lifetime and how the meaning and the impact is still is significant, but it's different because you're framing it from those. Now, now you're giving me a, a language. You're framing it from a different narrative environment while reading some of the same same material. Um, and so so I think that's a great framework for me, at least, to think about how we can change those those meanings of stories, because we, we have these examples of maybe stories outside of ourselves that are easier to to wrestle with in that way. Um, so we see also this happening with Job, too. We see him wrestling throughout the book and trying to frame and reframe his story, um, the narrative environment that he is finding himself in, because he kind of rejects the narratives that his friends are trying to give him. He wants to do it himself. He knows he needs to be the one to struggle with it. Um, but for us, uh, it's easy to kind of read that in Job's story because we know the end of the story. But how do we do the work of revising our stories? Yeah, well, and this, I think one way to do this is um, is to pay attention to the stories. I think, as you said, we don't we 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 don't always see the stories. We're in the middle of them. And I think what happens with Job is, is that his story radically changes. Um, and initially, I, he often we try to hold on to the stories we've had and then they stop working for some reason. And I think this happens to Job um, and his friends try to give him other stories that don't work entirely for him either. Um, But what he starts questioning the story. And I think if we can do the same thing, we can pay attention to the story. We can sort of think about what story is not working for us anymore. Um, We can look at what I call the backstory. Like, how did I get to this point in my life? You know, if you think of a backstory in a novel, it doesn't usually come out all at once. Um, the the novel starts in the middle of the action, and you think, well, how did the character get into this dilemma? The backstory tells us. So one of the things we can do is learn to read our own backstories better, and then also begin to sort of name the the problems that. Um, you know, what are the stories that are creating problems for us? What is the story that we're telling ourselves that gets in the way? Often those stories are connected to our inner critic um, that tell us we're not doing things right. And there's stories attached to that inner, what that inner critic says. One of the techniques that's used in narrative therapy um, that I find helpful is separating the person from the problem um, and naming the problem. Um, so I might say to myself, well, I'm just an angry person. I'm mad all the time. That that reduces me to the problem. If I say I'm a person who sometimes struggles with anger Hmm. or I'm a person who struggles to take care of myself or I'm a person who takes care of other people as a way to take care of myself, which isn't always helpful. That names the problem. And then I can relate to the problem and change the problem and change the stories that shape that problem. If I am the problem. Wow. Right? Yeah, I'm the problem. I'm I'm an angry person or I'm an addict or I'm whatever. If I'm reduced to the problem, that's pretty um what do you call it? It, it freezes you. Yeah. How do I fix myself? How do I change myself? Well, rather than name yeah, you can't. Rather than saying I'm not the problem. I have a problem. I've developed a way of behaving that's a problem. How can I change that? And and one way to do that is to begin to um, to kind of 
look at some of the different kinds of problem stories and how they're formed, where they come from. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's such a simple shift in language. We we can all try to make that shift. That that's an easy uh, shift in language that that might not immediately change how I feel about it, but it it the way that we speak and the way that we use language does shape how we feel about things and how we frame things. So yeah, and, and we can see this in other places too. You see some of the shift in language, but the, it, the, the idea is the person is not the problem. The problem is the problem. So to talk about a homeless person, for example, rather than a person struggling with homelessness. Exactly. Exactly. The person struggling with homelessness is probably a mother, a father, a brother. They are a kind person. They're a compassionate person. There are a lot more dimensions to them. And we reduce them to a single story, a very thin story. And then the other story strands of who they are and other accomplishments in their life or characteristics are sort of obliterated. So by sort of thickening the story is one way we can begin to challenge a problem story. Right. So talk to me a little bit about some other forms of stories that are problematic. So so this is a, a connected to what we were just saying, but I one I talk about it various kinds of stories. One is a confining story. And in some ways, reducing the person to the problem does confine us, but we may have a particular story that confines us or shapes expectations or limitations. Um, So often these are shaped by outside-in stories, stories others tell about us, and these stories become internalized. Um, They're either not adaptive over the long haul or they um, keep, they keep us out of particular opportunities. They're often formed in childhood. Um, and it sometimes children are assigned a particular role, like the emotional one or the fragile child or the responsible child. And we get stuck with those roles, but there are stories that support those roles. And let's say you were five years older than a younger sibling and you were told to take care of your younger ones at some point. And that was reinforced. It may have formed into a story that I must always take care of my younger siblings. So I don't know how old you are now, but let's say you're 30. I don't know. I'll take it. Let's say you're 30 (laughs) and you have a younger sibling who is not really an adult yet, but needs to be. Is it now you're still your responsibility to take care of that person who's now an adult? So those that can be a confining story. Well, and those are the kinds of stories when we hold on the onto them too long, start to really start to really be challenging. That that they're good when they are there, when they are appropriate, but but when we hold them on, hold them into into different parts of our lives where they're no longer applicable, that starts to create some dis- some new kinds of dysfunction. Right. And we kind of totalize the story rather than saying, well, that that made sense then in that context and that situation, but it may not be one we need to carry forward. What about stories that come from outside of our family system proper? Well, sometimes these are religious stories as well, or sometimes stories of the culture. So the United Methodist Church happens to ordain women, and they've been doing it a long time, actually, since 1954, which is the year I was born, although not many women went into ministry probably until the 70s. But when I was teaching, I still had a lot of women students who came from denominations that said women couldn't preach. Mm-hmm. And they felt a strong call to be in ministry and to preach, and they found themselves um having to leave that narrative environment of their denomination in order to follow a call um, that they had, that they felt that they were 
there was there was something within them that in order to be true to themselves, they had to leave behind those. So those stories can be confining about what we can or can't do. And sometimes those are linked to what uh, one author calls master narratives that are often linked to larger cultural expectations, often about gender, race, sexuality, age, or ethnicity. And they're not always uh, orig origin originate in the family, but they're often communicated through the family. Right. Those are often... It can also be that through the stories we read right. that are sort of have a second... That's not the intent of the story, but it communicates something else yeah. to us. And those are the kinds of narratives that we're not even always aware that we have. Like if we're if we're working to to become more anti-racist, part of the work of anti-racism is having to acknowledge narratives we were given that we weren't even aware we were given um, that are so embedded that way. Yeah. Um, so, for example, I learned to read with the Dick and Jane readers, which dates me. And uh, Dick and Jane were both white. Dick, uh, Jane wore a pink dress. Dick played with a ball and the dog. Jane stood on the side and was looked pretty and didn't do anything. She was blonde and blue eyed. That ostensibly was a book to teach reading, but it also told me that white people matter, black people are invisible, girls are passive and boys are active. Right. So even in those stories, those sort of larger narratives get embedded and we have to begin to question them. Yeah. So what do we do? do. <laughs> we can we can acknowledge, we can do this, but what are some strategies for challenging or revising these constraining stories? Well, as I said, the first thing is to begin to pay attention and notice when we feel a kind of disconnect in ourselves, that we're living out a story that doesn't feel like it fits. Sometimes it's really obvious and there's some kind of difficulty or tra trauma or challenge, it makes us aware of it, but it may not be. It may be, you know, like issues around anti-racism, we become sort of increasingly aware of, oh, I inherited these stories and I just, I just adopted them. So we can begin to ask ourselves some questions about that. How did this story get formed? Sort of what's the backstory? Um, what happened in my life to bring me to this point? Where did I learn this way of thinking, believing, or acting? What were the sort of the context or narrative environments? You know, what books did I read? What stories was I exposed to? What authorities reinforced these beliefs? Um, and, and who modeled this behavior for you? Right. So we begin to kind of challenge the way the story was constructed. And if it's a if it's a negative story we carry about ourselves, what contributed to our believing this story about ourselves? And another important question is who benefits from maintaining this story? That's huge. Yeah. So that, and that goes back to kind of the master narratives. And, and again, if it's a more of a personal story that says, you know, I'm not athletic or I'm not smart or I'm not this, is there any benefit to me to believe that story? Mm -hmm. So if I'm think I can't do certain things, then I just won't try. Right. And that will save me from failure, but I won't, try. So it that's part of the confining and constraining element. Right. And then what evidence do we have? That's not the whole story. There's always uh, sort of ambiguity in our stories. So in narrative therapy, they talk about exceptions. So you might say, well, I can never do this right. Well, is that true? Never. What about the time you did this? That's exactly the opposite of what you said you can't do. So if we begin to look for sort of exceptions when we're doing something very different, we're living out a different story. Again, we I talked about how our stories are multi-stranded and that often the problem story becomes dominant. But there's other stories we can pull out, stories of our competence, stories of our flexibility, stories of our growth. And we can build on those stories, strengthen those stories about our competencies and gifts. Right. Well, and I think this is also a chance for us to, to see 
again, Job's story and his process and that, that it's it's not necessarily a, a clean sort of uh, uh, from point A to point B. You see a lot of wrestling. You see a lot of questioning. You see a lot of pushing against those narratives and asking, you know, how does this all fit together? What doesn't connect? So I, I see some of those questions that you have, have presented there happening within Job's wrestling as well. So, so the stories we come from, you talked about the stories Job came from, the stories we come from can form us in positive ways, but can limit us. So looking at what are the stories we come from, challenging those, questioning those, as you said, as Job does, I think that that can be then part of our our spiritual and psychological growth. That's great. That's a great model for us and a great place, I think, for us to land this week um, to to be able to start wrestling with our own narratives and to to be able to challenge some of those and to as we write our stories together, which we're doing in worship each week, um, to to see where some of these these questions might might give us an opportunity to to revise and to reframe some of our own story and to to find ourselves in a different way. So. Thank you so much, Dr. Scheib, for being with us, and it is always a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.